so my name is Thomas. I'm the campus minister here with RUF. Uh, if I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you, um, get coffee with you. That's what I do for a living. Uh, and at RUF, we believe that you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And at the same time, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And so that means wherever you find yourself this week, whether you feel like you've been kind of crushing it or if you're coming in here kind of limping, feeling like you've been crushed, uh, you're welcome here at RUF. Uh, We believe that God's kindness to us in Jesus is the most important thing, and we want to tell you about that every week. And so every semester in RUF, we go through a sermon series. Uh, This semester, we are going through one in the Old Testament, as we mentioned earlier, uh, we're kind of doing a, a Old Testament survey in a series called Every Story Whispers His Name. Uh, and that's kind of a claim that we're making about the Old Testament, that every story whispers the name of Jesus. Uh, the Old Testament, though it can be confusing and though it can seem foreign at times, uh, we want to kind of put this before you every week that it actually shows us the heart of Jesus and it gives us wisdom for the modern world. The Old Testament shows us the heart of Jesus And gives us wisdom for the modern world. So tonight and for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. So there's a lot of things that happen in Genesis. Um, This book is universal in scope. Like it starts very big. I mean, this story that we just read, it's the creation of everything. So uh, even as this passage was being read, uh, I wonder if what many of you are thinking Uh, This is a polarizing passage of scripture. Uh, Many of us might have been raised in the church and kind of been given some very strong takes about this passage. Uh, Many of us might be really turned off by some of the takes that we've heard. Uh, Some of us weren't raised in the church, but we kind of heard that Christians have a particular view on this passage. Uh, The kind of polarizing divide here is this passage, when we come to it, a lot of times we see this as kind of the epicenter of this divide between the Bible and science. It seems as if there is kind of like a a problem here. The Bible, it's argued, presents a clear picture of the origins of the universe and doesn't leave any doubts as to how and when we got here. And any dissent is dangerous. And conversely, science, it is argued, presents a clear picture of the origins of the universe and doesn't leave any doubts as to how we got here. And any dissent is dangerous. Uh, Do you see what sort of problem we might be running into? The way that things are often presented is that the Bible on the one hand and science on the other are mutually exclusive. That there's no way that you can kind of understand how these go together. They couldn't possibly go together. Uh, And I want to suggest to you that reading this passage as kind of the Bible versus science is missing the point. I want to get at that with uh, a couple stories. Uh, One, my friend Chandler told this story uh, to me recently, but... Uh, Just imagine this, okay? So you get the new iPhone 13. I think that's what we're on at this point. I'm a Google phone guy. I wouldn't know. Um, That was a weird flex, but... uh, So you get this new iPhone 13, and we're meeting, having coffee, as I'm prone to do with people, and you're showing off all the the bells and whistles of this phone, and you're very, very excited about it. I say, man, that phone is cool. I could really use your help tomorrow... Uh, hanging some pictures at my house. Will you come by and make sure to bring that phone? And so you come by, and uh, you show up, and then I ask when you get here, uh, would you mind if I borrow your phone? And you're like, yeah, it's a weird thing to ask, sure, but you're assuming maybe I'm going to like look at the wall or something and see if there's some sort of like balancing thing where I could hang pictures. 
And I proceed to take the phone and then try to hammer nails in the wall with it. And so what happens? After about a minute of doing that, uh, the nails are not in the wall and the phone is destroyed. And then after that, I, I come up to you and I say, dude, this phone is garbage. Like it doesn't even work. Okay, what's the problem in that situation? See, the problem in that situation is that I have evaluated something based on what it's not meant to do. And I think we run into the same problem when we turn to Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and use it to answer our modernistic questions. Questions that we have in the modern world. That doesn't mean they're not valid, but that's actually not what the text was written to address. You see, Genesis 1 and 2, it was written for us. It was written for humanity, but it was not written to us. And that's a weird distinction, but I think it's very important. It was written for us, meaning it's for our edification. It's true. It tells a true story of humanity. But it was not written to us. It did not have our culture in mind. It did not have our modern assumptions in mind. So Moses wrote Genesis to Israel. But it is also for us. And so in order to understand Genesis 1, we need to understand the people that Moses was writing to. We need to understand something about the questions that they were asking about the world around them. Uh, And to get at that, I just want you to imagine uh, that you have a ton of enemies. Uh, For some of us, maybe that's not hard to imagine. I don't don't know your life. Um, But imagine you have a ton of enemies. They've tapped your phone. They're following you around. And then finally, they track you down, and you're surrounded by them. And there's this giant circle of them, and there's you in the middle. And it's these big, huge guys, they've got weapons, like, you're done, it's over. That's the end of your life as you know it. And then when, you know, all hope seems lost, you start to hear an engine off in the distance. And then it gets louder and louder and louder, and then somebody, this hooded figure on a motorcycle, like, screeches in, grabs you, puts you on the back of the motorcycle, speeds away, and all of a sudden you're safe. Okay, I I want you to consider, if that happens to you, what sort of questions are you asking? What sort of questions are you asking of that situation? I don't think the first thing that comes in your mind is like, huh, like where did he get that hoodie? Is that from Lulu? Or uh, what kind of motorcycle is this? I'm uncertain, uh, what kind of tires are those? Exactly how fast was he going in order to skid like that? No, those are not the questions that you're asking in that situation. The questions you're asking are, what is going on? Who is this guy? Why did he save me? Am I safe? Am I going to be okay? You see, these questions are more like what the original audience of Genesis would have been asking. These are the questions they would have had. See, the original audience of Genesis, were it was Israel who had spent 400 plus years in slavery. They had lived in Egypt under a tyrant king. And then God had miraculously brought them out. He brought them out through uh, the plagues, which if you're here a couple semesters ago, we talked about those, brought them through the Red Sea. Uh, All of these dramatic, crazy things have happened to them, and they they were dead in the water before God entered their story. But then God dramatically rescues them. And so the questions that they're asking are these same questions. What is going on? Who is this God? Why did he save me? What what is who am I to him? And I think these questions are actually very relevant to us as well. Don't we wonder if there is a purpose to what we go through? 
aren't we concerned about whether life means anything? Don't we ever have that moment of asking, like, who am I? What's the point? Is there a God? You see, these are the questions that this passage addresses. And so as we kind of move through this passage, I just want to pick two questions that I think are really prominent, uh, that I think were relevant for the original hearers of this passage, and I think they're also relevant for us. So two questions we're going to ask as we go through this. First question, who is God? Second question, who are we? So first question, who is God? Second question, who are we? Uh, So I want to pause and pray real quick, and then we can go ahead and jump in. Heavenly Father, uh, we do pray that you would be with us, uh, that you would open our eyes and help us to see who you are, help us to see you clearly. Uh, Lord, for many of us, the the passage about the the creation of the world is so familiar that it's kind of hard to look at it with fresh eyes. I pray that you would... Um, Give us a fresh vision of who you are through that. And for others of us, we may have heard this passage used in all sorts of crazy ways and honestly be really skeptical about it. But I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to help us see you clearly. Um, Lord, we can't do this without your help, so we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit. All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the the first fundamental question we're going to look at, who is God? Who is God? Uh, Right at the beginning of this passage, it tells us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So right from the start, the primary actor from the first page of the Bible is God. The whole thing is about him. It starts with him. And what is he doing? God is creating everything. He's creating everything. He creates everything out of nothing. Verse 1 tells us he created the earth and it was formless and void. God is the source of everything. He's the first mover. From him comes everything else. And this confronts the kind of polytheistic world of the Israelites who would have been kind of brought up in this world where there were many gods, any number of gods who were kind of warring together all the time. And it was kind of chaos in the realm of the gods. And they also would have known Pharaoh, the, the king, would have seen himself as God. And so this image of God creating, one God creating, not out of crisis, but just one God, this would have confronted them. And I think it also confronts us in kind of our materialistic assumptions, right? That the world is all there ever has been, and it's all there ever will be. What we see here is a God who speaks, And there's a lot of repetition in this passage. Uh, I'm not going to go through everything in it. There's many more things that you can get from this passage. I'm kind of picking and choosing here. Uh, But there is a lot of repetition. And one of the things that is said over and over again is this pattern. You might have picked up on it as Clay was reading. God says, let there be. And then it says, and there was. Or, and so it was. You see, God creates by his speech. When he speaks, things happen. There's absolutely no gap between what God says and what God does. And for the original hearers of this, they would have immediately interpreted this as the activity of a king. This is what a king does. A king declares something, and it happens. And they had some bad experiences with kings. So there's no separation between God's speech and his action. No one suggests... To God, you know, maybe we should go a different way. I don't know. Have you thought about doing, like, horizontal stripes on zebras? No, like, 
God decided it, and that's what happened. God went about things his way. God, the king, creates with singular authority and intentionality. So the first thing we see is God is the king of creation. But secondly, we see that God is an unusual king. God is an unusual king. Uh, One of my favorite moments in the Harry Potter movies, I'm not sure exactly which one it is, um, but uh, Harry is at home at the Dursley's house. Uh, Mr. Dursley is having a person over from work. He's trying to close his big business deal, and he basically says to Harry, I need you to make yourself scarce. I don't want to hear anything from you. Go upstairs, lock yourself in your room. If I hear anything from you, like I will kill you which is not a thing that uh, your uncle should ever say to you, but I don't think Mr. Dursley is concerned with that. Um, But what happens in this moment is Harry's up in his room, and then the worst possible thing happens. A house elf shows up, a house elf named Dobby. Uh, And Dobby is wonderful. He's a beloved character, but he's very loud. Uh, And he is uh, very concerned that Harry won't return to Hogwarts. And so Dobby is being really disturbing Uh, And Harry, as he's talking to him, Dobby is being very loud. He says, please be quiet. And then finally he says to him, Dobby, please just sit down and talk with me. And then that was like the exact wrong thing to say because Dobby starts wailing. He starts crying. And he says this to Harry, no wizard has ever asked me to sit down and talk with them as an equal. He says, Dobby has heard of your greatness, sir, but of your goodness, Dobby never knew. Of your goodness, Dobby never knew. And I think as we look at this creation account, uh, the greatness of God is on display very clearly. But we also see the goodness of God. We see that God is unusual. He's not a tyrant king. He's a king who loves his creation. You see, ancient creation stories, they usually told a story of a god or gods who created out of some necessity or some desire to have humanity as a slave people or they created out of this like cosmic chaos, and then boom, here's the earth. Um, but what happens here is that there's no sign of that. God creates out of abundance. There's no sense of God needing anything from his creation. And not only that, God spends an inordinate amount of time ordering his creation. Another thing that's repeated throughout this passage again is God makes everything, and it says, each according to its kind. And then I love in verse 21, uh, God commands the earth to be teeming and swarming with creatures. God loves abundance. God loves diversity in his creation. And we see this other refrain that God says continually. It says, and God saw that it was good. He says this seven times throughout the passage. The Hebrew word is tov, and it means good or beautiful. God saw that it was beautiful. God not only creates with authority, he's not only great, but he delights in his creation. He thinks it's beautiful. He gloats over it. He's committed to it. He is intimately involved with its ongoing activity. Uh, The New Testament says it this way. It says, not only did God create the earth, but he actually currently upholds it by the word of his power. There is this bond between God and his creation. A theologian named Walter Brueggemann says it this way. He says, this text announces the deepest mystery. God wills and will have a faithful relation with the earth. This text invites the listening community to celebrate that reality. That binding is irreversible. God has decided it. The connection cannot be 
nullified. So God is the great king of creation, but he is also the good king who is committed to his creation, who delights in his creation. So this passage has shown us that, but, but it also shows us of something, something of who we are. So that's our second question. Who are we? Who are we? So uh, God has been creating. He does so uh, within a week. That's how the text is arranged. And then we get to the sixth day of creation. And God says, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So God creates living creatures on the earth. And then the last thing that he does is he creates humanity. On the sixth day, God creates humanity. And again, there are many things that we could pull from this, but there are just two things that I want to note on what it means to be a human, who we are. The first thing is this. We are creatures. We are creatures. I don't know if that's a term that you often would think of when you think of yourself, that you're a creature. Uh, If you come to RUF, we actually sing it every week in the doxology. Uh, We say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God, all creatures here below. Uh, And I don't know if you know that or not, but what you're saying is, I am a creature, (laughs) just like the birds of the air. There's this sense, uh, we we belong to the earth. To be a human being, it's to be a creature of the sixth day. Um, God says of both the fish and the birds, as well as as, as humans, he says, be fruitful and multiply. And it's as if what God is saying is that the fish belong to the sea, the birds belong to the air, and humans belong to the earth. God is saying that there's something about this earth that that we belong here. We are made by God. This means that we relate to God in the same way that Hermione Granger relates to J.K. Rowling. We relate to God in the same way that Frodo Baggins relates to J.R.R. Tolkien means we, we owe our entire existence to God. Everything that we are comes from him. So we are creatures, but second off, we are image bearers. We are image bearers. Uh, there is a key distinction between us and the rest of creation that God makes. Uh, God says in verse 26, uh, God says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. Little caveat there, the plural, let us make God in our image. People have debated about this forever. Some people say this is a prequel of the Trinity. This is kind of a a preview of what's to come, what's revealed in the New Testament. Other people say that it's uh, the heavenly host that God is speaking to. That's spoken of in other places in the Old Testament. Not really my prerogative to decide that. I think both of those are completely valid options, but I just wanted to point that out because that's kind of weird. So back to the text. Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over everything that creeps on the earth. And God did it. It says God created man in his image, male and female. He created them. So what exactly does that mean? Uh, You may have heard someone refer to themselves as created in the image of God. Uh, You might have heard that language used before. What does that mean? I think that means to kind of similarly to how we thought about this before, it means that we relate to God somehow in the way that like the Lord of the Rings movies relate to the books. We relate to God the way that the Harry Potter movies relate to the books. What it means there is that there's something about our purpose that comes from the original. 
right? The purpose of the Lord of the Rings movies is to convey what's in the book in a different medium. So we are a different medium conveying what God is like. God, the infinite, expresses who he is within the finite. That's what it means to be created in the image of God. And I think it means that we are like God in a very significant sense. We're the only thing in creation that is like God. And I think this entails both an inherent dignity and a calling. So a dignity and a calling. A dignity, of course, of all things in creation, it's only human beings that are made in God's image. It's only us. We are the crowning jewel of creation. The thing that is most like God. And maybe you don't believe this. Maybe this uh, Genesis 1 seems kind of like crazy to you. But I just want to ask, does that not make sense of what we kind of intuitively feel about ourselves? Does it not make sense that we somehow are like God? It's the foundation of so much of what we do. I mean, it's why we do things like set boundaries. Because we know deep down that we have some sense of inherent dignity that needs to be respected. And when someone tramples on us, it's why we feel validated to set a boundary. Or it's why we feel so awful when we hurt someone. Because we recognize that that person has dignity. And I didn't treat them that way. It's something that the founders of this country assumed. They put it in our Constitution, though I think that they imperfectly expressed it. And actually it's something that the civil rights era took hold of in order to affect change. That all of humanity has dignity given by God. Every human being is created in the image of God and there is inherent dignity within that. But not only is there dignity, there's a calling. We see the calling of bearing the image of God throughout this passage. In verse 28, God says to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue the earth, and to have dominion. Uh, this is what theologians sometimes refer to as the uh, creation or the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate. So remember how we talked about the fact that God is an unusual king, that he does things differently than you would expect. What we see here is that God is commissioning his image bearers to do what he did in creation. God is delegating. He's not an anxious king. He's not an anxious leader. He, God is, is big enough to be able to create human beings that make decisions that matter, that do things with the world that he has given to us. And we also see from this that God built creation in such a way that it had latent potential. And he gave us the job of bringing that potential to bear. I love this quote from Al Walters, who wrote a book called Creation Regained. He said, creation is not something that once made remains a static quantity. There is, as it were, a growing up, an unfolding of creation. This takes place through the task that people have been given of bringing to fruition the possibilities of development implicit in the work of God's hands. The given reality of the created order is such that it is possible to have schools and industry, printing and rocketry, needlepoint and chess, we are called to participate in the ongoing creational work of God, to be God's helper in executing to the end the blueprint for his masterpiece. So what does that mean? That, I mean that's, a, that's a big deal. That really should change the way that we think about ourselves, change the way that we think about the world around us. 
Uh, I can think of two ways that this kind of impacts the way that we live our daily lives. First, I think this means that we will find the most fulfillment in our existence the more we pay attention to God. The more we pay attention to God, the more we are going to have a fulfilling life. St. Augustine famously said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. From the beginning pages of scripture, we see a God-focused reality. And so it would make sense that when our focus drifts, that's when we feel most restless. So could it be that the restlessness that you feel, the, the feeling of longing for whatever's next in your life, the feeling of longing for things to be different, Uh, that anxiety, that feeling of wanting to be past that test, could it be that that restlessness is actually a longing for home? That that restlessness is actually, uh, it's a dissatisfaction with living a self-centered life because deep down, we know that we're supposed to aim higher. We know that the things that we focus on, they can't bear the weight we put on them. Only God can. So we'll find the most fulfillment in our existence the more we pay attention to God And secondly, uh, we reflect God with the entirety of our humanity. The entirety of our humanity. Um, A lot of us, if you're raised in the church, maybe you kind of got this idea that uh, the gospel is uh, Jesus died for my sins. Full stop. And uh, that's great. It's true. Absolutely. Jesus did die for your sins. I want you to believe that. But what I want to say to you is that we can always say more than that. Uh, The gospel does not start with sin and end with Jesus. The gospel starts with creation, a creation that falls, a creation that is redeemed in Christ, and a creation that is restored finally through him. We need to tell the whole story. You see, to be a Christian means to confess uh, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry Mine. There is no square inch of your existence that doesn't belong to God. We don't need to limit it. The implications of this are huge. Uh, One that I want to say, there is no such thing as sacred and secular. That doesn't exist. There's no such thing as a divide between the sacred and secular. Actually, everything is sacred. It all belongs to God. All of life belongs to God. Your schoolwork is a way of transcribing God's character into the world. Your part-time jobs are a way of transcribing God's creative character into the world. You see, your work matters to God. I think a lot of us, as you're thinking, especially as you're thinking about what might be next, and there can be a popular idea that in order to be a real Christian, you need to work in ministry or to be like a missionary. Uh, What I want to do here is disabuse you of that notion. (laughs) The majority of Christians are not called to that, and that's okay. God is not offended by that. Your work matters. You are transcribing God's character. Uh, This quote is sometimes attributed to Martin Luther. I don't think he actually said it, but it's good, so I'm going to say it anyways. It says this, The Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on shoes, but by making good shoes. Because God is interested in good craftsmanship. You see, in order to be a faithful Christian, you don't have to put a cross on everything. You don't have to leverage every single thing that you're doing for the purpose of evangelism. I do hope that you do evangelize. I do hope that you share Jesus. 
But that's not what gives your work value. Your work is valuable, full stop. Like you're doing what God created you to do. That's what it means that God created this world this way. So God, the unusual king of creation, he tells us who we are. We're creatures and we bear his image. And there is so much more that I would love to say about this passage. Uh, It's one of those things I feel like people in my shoes say all the time, uh, oh man, I could spend like an entire year on this. And then everybody who's sitting listening is like, oh, please don't. That sounds terrible. Um, Fortunately for you, I'm not going to do that. But I just want to close by connecting this story uh, to the heart of Jesus. How does this lead us to the heart of Jesus? Uh, Maybe you've heard of the uh, 20th century mystery writer Dorothy Sayers. Anyone? Yeah, I figured Joel might be the only one. Uh, A lot of my illustrations tonight have been book-related. It's okay if you don't read. I just want to throw that out there. It's okay. Like, you should read. It's a good thing. But, you know, it's okay if you don't. just want to say that. Um, So Dorothy Sayers, uh, she's a 20th century mystery writer. She was, by all accounts, a genius. Uh, She was one of the first women ever admitted to Oxford. Um, She was a prolific author of detective stories centered around this character named Lord Peter Whimsey. And these stories were very popular at the time. People in the press loved to, you know, come out with theories about it. People would talk about which characters they liked, which ones they didn't like. And a recurring thing is that uh, Dorothy Sayers would defend her main character because a lot of people just didn't like Lord Peter Whimsey. And she would constantly defend him. Like, she had such an obsession with this character. And somewhere along the way in the series, a new character named Harriet Vane appears in the stories. And here's what we know about Harriet Vane. Uh, Harriet Vane is one of the first women to go to Oxford and a prolific writer of detective fiction. Does that sound familiar? And as the stories go, Harriet and Lord Peter Whimsey met and fell deeply in love, got married, and solved mysteries together for the rest of their days. What's happening there? See, what's happening there, many people speculate that Sayers, she had such an affection for the main character in her story, the character that she created, that she could not help but write herself into the story. She couldn't help but write herself into the story. And see, in this story that we looked at tonight, in this true story of our origins, we see a God who gloats over his creation. A God who loves his creation so much, who calls it very good seven times. A God who is so intimately committed to his creation. How committed was he? He is every bit as committed as Dorothy Sayers was. We see the answer in Jesus. Jesus is God who wrote himself into the story. In the New Testament reading that we talked about earlier, it says of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And then in verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God is so committed to his good creation, you included, that Jesus willingly entered into this world and took on the limitation of being a human being so that we could be with him forever. 
And this might sound small, but it's, it's a pretty major point, okay? The, the primary driving force in Jesus' coming is not just sin, okay? The primary driving force was God's covenantal commitment to his people. See, God is so committed to those who bear his image that he would gladly come and be incarnate. You see, Jesus, is, he is the perfect image of God who enters into the human story that we might be confirmed in our dignity as his image bearers, but also that we might be restored to our high calling, that we might be restored as, as God's representatives in creation. See, the gospel, it, it's so much bigger. It, it starts with creation, goes through fall, we're redeemed in Christ, and moves on to new creation. The gospel is a story of creation regained. Thank <laughs> you.